For those of you who don't know, many Sundays, not every Sunday, but many Sundays, uh, Brother Larry brings me a gift. That's from last Sunday. This is today. Now he told me when he brought me today's that he he made a mistake. Last Sunday he brought me this one. He said this was the hour-long sermon. This one's a 30-minute sermon. We'll see if this is division or multiplication. (laughs) I heard you all the way up here. (laughs) Oh, goodness. We'll just let the Lord decide. How about that? I know that's what you want, so. But I got to give you a hard time back because I want you to make sure. No, I do like, I do like you and love you. As hard as it is. All right. Enough foolishness aside. We're back in Second Peter again today. Imagine that. We haven't gotten very far. We'll see if we can get a little bit further today. Second Peter chapter one. I do want to read the first fifteen verses. I didn't do that last week. Uh, again, just to put us into context of where we'll be since we're going kind of slow. Second uh, Peter chapter 1, first few verses reads as follows, Simon Peter, a servant and an apostle of Jesus Christ, to them that have obtained like precious faith with us through the righteousness of God and our Savior Jesus Christ, grace and peace be multiplied unto you through knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. According as His divine power hath given us, Unto us all things that pertain unto life and godliness, through the knowledge of him that has called us to his glory and virtue, whereby are given unto us exceedingly great and precious promise, that by these ye might be partakers of the divine nature, having escaped the corruption that is in the world through lust. And besides this, giving all diligence, add to your faith virtue, and to virtue knowledge." into knowledge temperance, into temperance patience, into patience godliness, into godliness brotherly kindness, and to brotherly kindness charity. For if these things be in you and abound, they make you that you shall neither be barren nor unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. But he that lacketh these things is blind and cannot see afar off. He hath forgotten that he was purged from his old sins, Wherefore, the rather, brethren, give diligence to make your calling and election sure. For if you do these things, you shall never fail. For so an entrance shall be ministered unto you abundantly into the everlasting kingdom of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Wherefore, I will not be negligent to put you always in remembrance of these things, though you know them, and be established in the present truth. Yea, I think it meet, as long as I am in this tabernacle, to stir you up, by putting you in remembrance, knowing that shortly I must put off this tabernacle, even as our Lord Jesus Christ has showed me. 
So that's the first 14 verses, if correctly read, in 2 Peter chapter 1. Just real quick, as a reminder, we discussed that we have a like precious faith, just like Peter obtained, and that's through Jesus Christ, the same faith that the uh, founding fathers, if you will, the apostles and disciples and those who have come so far and have been so long with the Lord. It's the same faith that Abraham had to have. There is no difference. And we all come to the Lord to that same like and what Peter calls precious faith. That God wants to uh, give us grace and peace and that it will be multiplied to us, not just added, but multiplied. Um, we get that through our intimate, through our deep personal knowledge of Jesus Christ. We're reminded that He's given us everything we need for this life to be godly through our own personal knowledge in Him and through His glory and His virtue, which we should model after. And therefore, we are given this promise that we get to be partakers of His divine nature, and by that means at some point we will be even more like Him than the little bit that we currently are. And we're then told and encouraged that we should therefore uh, be diligent or make haste. We should be quick to add or supplement or work together the following graces that are described here. And again, we spent a great deal of time talking about this idea of adding or supplementing is like a dance or a chorus. All these things go together in perfect harmony, perfect time, and perfect pitch. And they work together to produce something. And we describe that that uh, begins with faith in Jesus Christ, that deep knowledge, that point of salvation, because everything else builds off of that. Because without faith in God, without having been uh, forgiven by God, then we have no part with God. We cannot please God unless we have faith in Him. I talked about that last um, week, and we describe that faith is the animating principle that all these other graces come from. And then we began and we looked at virtue and what that means. And virtue, we were reminded, requires action. It's not passive. Virtue isn't just sitting around passively doing nothing. Virtue is being active. And virtue is being active in the things that Christ modeled for us, the way that he wants us to be, doing things that are moral and right. And we were reminded, rather starkly perhaps, last Sunday, that what society has done is confused what moral and virtue is. We say that being passive is virtuous when it's not. We say that doing things that the scripture says are wrong is good and a virtue. And we must make sure that we know the scriptures and know the Lord so that we can do this the right way around so that we can truly have virtue. And again, we were reminded last week that we cannot compromise as a church, as a body of believers, because as the world disintegrates around us and everyone says what's up is down and what's down is up, and what's true is false, or even says there is no such thing as true, anything anymore. And at some point, the world's going to look around, realizing they're standing on nothing, and that the sand around them is moving, and that the water they're trying to build their life on is not stable. And they're going to look for someone who has their foot on the rock of Jesus Christ, and that ought to be us, that ought to be the church. We ought to be ready to extend our arm to those who realize they're sinking and help them find the path forward. And we can only do that if we remain virtuous by following what the Lord wants us to do. Real quickly, I, I don't think I mentioned it in the intro, but I want to just remind us that while these graces are connected together and they to some degree build on each other, these are not separate from each other. Again, the idea of it being more like a coordinated dance, things working together. And it's also not as though you can have one and not the other. You need to have 
all of these. But it's not as though you can, uh, once you get virtue taken care of, then you can move on to knowledge and so forth. It's not built in a stair-step matter like that. They're just interconnected truths and graces that we are to have. And so we'll begin by picking back up uh, in verse 5. And it says, And besides all this, giving all diligence, add to your faith virtue, and to virtue knowledge. And knowledge is where I want to pick up today, talking about this knowledge, this idea that we have insight or understanding. It could be interpreted as spiritual prudence or knowledge or the will of God. And I do want to point out that this word knowledge is actually a different, slightly different Greek word than the first two times that this is used earlier in the chapter. And so the first two times it's used earlier in the chapter, the, the prefix for the same root word means that there is a, um, a recognition or a, a full discernment of God. So when it's talking about a knowledge of God, I think what this is talking about is that point in our lives when we come to know God in that deepest sense, as in we are saved. And that is the point where we get to, you cannot be more saved, you cannot grow in knowledge in that way. You cannot be more saved than you were at the moment you were saved. You with me? But you can grow in your knowledge as in your understanding of the Lord as you go throughout life. And so I think, again, one of the powers of the Greek language here, and I only know this from research, and I'm certainly not a scholar in this way, we can see that this knowledge the first two times is talking about knowing God for the first time. And here, when it talks about this grace, when we add um, to virtue our knowledge, we're talking about growing something that we can get closer to God, begin to know Him even better. And that is a challenge, something we should do. And so I do want to distinguish that. We're not talking about salvation here. We're assuming, based on faith, that you already have known God the first time and been saved. You cannot grow in that knowledge, but you can know him better as you would know a person. And so we should grow to know him better. We should seek after him. In addition to being uh, virtuous, we should know him better. That means we should know what is right and wrong. We should know what he would want us to do in certain situations. We should know doctrines that God clearly gives us in the scriptures. We should know the promise of the gospel. We should know with a deep passion all of these things. And we should allow this knowledge to direct how we act. This is important. In fact, um, We see in several places Peter talks about this. And in verse 8, he says, For these things be in you and abound that they may, that you may, I'm sorry, that you, let's start over. Verse 8, For if these things be in you and abound, they make you that you shall neither be, neither be barren nor unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. Again, the idea that these graces, these things that grow inside of us, this continued knowledge of the Lord that comes after salvation is something that grows inside of us so that we can know the Lord and what he would have for us to do. He doesn't want us to be unknowledgeable of these things. In fact, earlier in 1 Peter, um, we see this as well. 1 Peter 3 and 8, he says he doesn't want us to be ignorant. That same idea. He doesn't want us to be unknowledgeable of what God wants us to do. Ephesians 5.17 says something similar. Do not be foolish, but understand what is the will of the Lord. 
How many of you can say that today? Do you understand what the will of the Lord is? You ever thought about it that way? Don't be foolish, but understand or have knowledge what the will of the Lord is. Let us pause here just for a second and say that I think this is something that's very challenging for us. Many of us have gone through our lives at different points and we want to know what God's will is. Many of us have certainly asked for the will of God to be revealed to us. How many of us have actually waited long enough to get an answer? Many times we don't want to. We want to know what the will of God is. We want to know right then. Sometimes we're not willing to actually act on that. But we're reminded again in Ephesians, don't be foolish, but understand or have knowledge of what the will of the Lord is. God expects us to know what he wants us to do. Hebrews 5.14 also reminds us, but solid, solid food is for the mature, for those who have their powers of discernment trained by consistent practice to distinguish or to know good from evil. Again, we come back to this idea that we can grow in this knowledge. We are facing a time of unprecedented challenges, many of which, I'll just be honest, are not directly discussed in the Scripture. Does that make sense? The Bible doesn't talk about computers. It doesn't talk about the Internet. It doesn't talk about phones. It doesn't talk about different types of drugs, etc., etc., And so then we have to rely on our knowledge of what the Scripture tells us, our knowledge of what the Lord tells us, to then determine what is the will of the Lord, what we are to do that is right and wrong, what we are to do and what we are to abstain from doing. This comes from knowledge and a relationship with Jesus Christ. I hope you understand I'm not saying the Bible is inadequate or not relevant. That's certainly not the case. But what I'm saying is, with some of the challenges we're facing today, we have to seek and strive to understand, to know what is right and what is wrong. We have to do that through the Scripture and through the Lord. And so if we're wanting to add to virtue with knowledge... How do we do that? How do we gain more of this knowledge? If this word that represents knowledge here is something that we can grow into and become better at, how do we do that? You're going to see me try and give a how after every grace we talk about. How do we grow in knowledge? Well, first, we spend time with him. That may sound rather silly, but it's very true. If you want to know somebody, you have to do what? You have to spend time with them. You have to talk with them. You have to do things with them. You don't really know somebody you've never met. You don't know somebody you don't talk to very often. The more you spend time with someone, the more that you know them, right? The more that you grow together with them. And so if we are to know the Lord and to be able to know what he wants us to do and to be able to know what he doesn't want us to do, then we have to spend time with him. We also have to read the letters that he wrote us. You have to read the Word of God. You have to study the Word of God. We have to spend time doing as I'm doing over this last few weeks and the next week or two where we sit down and we spend time thinking about maybe even just one word at a time. Other times we sit back and we read chapters and books at a time and we let the Word of God wash over us and into our lives in every way that the Spirit sees fit to reveal us. And other times, again, we slow down and we make a careful study. But we should be doing all of this all of the time. If you rely on either the uh, 30, 
or hour-long sermon <laughs> that you may get, once a week, whether it's 30 minutes or an hour, it doesn't matter. It's not enough. You must be in the Word of God to know Him and to know what He wants you to do. So if you're thinking in your life, well, I don't know what God wants me to do. Do I go here or do I go here? Do I take this job? Do I take this promotion? Do I give money to this person? Whatever question you have, God has the answer and the knowledge He is waiting to give to you. If only we would spend time with Him to read His Word and to... the third part is communicate with him. Talk with him. In fact, we probably should think about this because it's just something we understand as in a relationship, a good friendship we have with someone else. And if you think about that, whether that's a close friend or a sibling or a spouse or anybody, you think about a close relationship, there's times when you just talk and talk and talk, right? And there's other times you just kind of sit quietly with that person. There's other times you experience something else with that person. And then after that's over, you then discuss what it was that you just experienced. That same idea is true of God. Sometimes we should sit and talk with God. Other times we just need to be present with Him. Sometimes we need to let Him do the talking. And other times we go through an experience of life and after it's over, we sit down and say, Did you just see that? Can you believe that so-and-so did? Why? There's no difference. If we want to really know God, then we have to really think about how we know people. Because it's not that different. And so the real challenge for us is, are you growing in your knowledge of God? Are you spending time with Him? Are you reading and studying the letters that He wrote you? Are you talking with Him? Not just to Him, but with Him. Are you allowing Him to speak to you? Because this is an important and a vital aspect of being a Christian is that we grow in our knowledge, our insight, our understanding, that we know what God wills for our life. It's very important. Okay. Now comes the hard part. And to knowledge, temperance. Hmm. What is Temperance. Well, it's kind of an old-fashioned word for us today. It means self-control. How many of you like self-control? Nobody raised their hand. How about that? Temperance. Self-control. Maybe a better translation would be uh, self-control of the, of the soul. We must learn to discern between good and evil. And that will lead us to avoiding evil and choosing good, right? So again, we're building on these things. One's not better than the other, but they're all tied together, right? Our knowledge of what God wants us to do tells us what we should and should not do, and we have to grow in our self-control, and self-control is both abstaining from something and doing things. It's both abstaining and doing things. We must have the knowledge to produce the fruit or to do what we should do. Now, I do want us to notice that this self-control is not an issue of um, improper fear, but the proper fear of God. That is, when we respect and know, again, you see all these tied together, what God wants us to do, and we model His virtues, we then desire to do the right thing, even when our bodies don't want to. 
Paul goes through this. I want to do what I should do, but I don't. And I don't want to do the things that I should do. Again, how many times must we raise our hands for that challenge? It's a perpetual issue that we have, whether we're talking about trying to diet or trying to exercise or trying to read or trying to stay awake or to sleep more. All these different things that our bodies want to do, all these different things that our personalities want or don't want to do, and we must master them. We must have self-control over all of them. If you look through history at great men and women, especially great men and women of faith, their fall is usually resulting from a lack of self-control. That can be lust. That can be drugs or alcohol. It can be greed. It can be pride. It can be the pursuit of power. I don't know what it is that you struggle with in your life, but understand when God mentions here that we must add self-control or temperance to our lives and to knowledge, there is an important reason for that. We are to be self-controlled. We are to be masters of ourselves. 1 Corinthians 6.12 says, All things are lawful for me, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful for me, but I will not be dominated, or you could say mastered, by anything. So here's a couple of really important questions. What controls you? Think about that. What controls you? What is master over you? Is there a sin in your life that is controlling you? Let me ask it maybe the easier and at the same time harder question. Does God's love control you? Because it might be easy at the moment you are in life to say, well, I think I got things pretty well under control. I'm not in any great mortal sin and every once in a while I slip up, but I'm doing okay. Fine. Does God's love control you? What controls you? Where do you lack self-control? Where do you lack self-control? When do you expect to be weak? And what do you do to avoid it? When do you expect to be weak? See, all of us must admit we have weaknesses, right? We have issues where we're not as controlling of ourselves as we should be. What must we do when we encounter those situations where we have great temptations, great options? Oh, we must be extra careful. But the challenge comes when we have to identify it ahead of time. We have to know where we have weaknesses. We have to know where we struggle in self-control. And we have to set up systems and things and go to the Lord and ask for help and protection in those most challenging times. And the practice of this comes from everything, from as simple as finishing your homework or exercising or eating or not eating a certain thing, all the way up to the big things. Because when we have self-control in the small things, when we have the little things in our life mastered, it's easier to face the big challenges. But what tends to happen in all of our lives, whether Christian or no, is we begin to take these little tiny steps and we get closer and closer and closer and closer to something that a year ago we would never have ever have thought possible. Because we've allowed the world to control us a little bit and a little bit. 
And instead of practicing self-control and saying, no, I will not do this, we say, well, I'll just do a little bit. Or I'll just kind of go around the edges. Or I'll do it for a minute, then I won't do it again. But every time we give in and we lack self-control, every time we allow ourselves to sin, every time we allow ourselves to sin by doing or not doing something, we are giving in and it gets easier the next time. I'm telling you, not to get back on last week's topic, no one just wakes up and says, I want to abuse a child. There are little steps where we lack self-control and get tempted, and we do this, and that's okay, so we do this, and that's okay, so we do this, and that's okay. The next thing you know, I have a very, very serious problem. And so temperance or self-control is vital to who we are as a Christian. And we must ask ourselves, A, what controls us, and B, where do we lack self-control? And so as I said, I want to make this very practical. So how do we get self-control? Well, first we have to know him. It's that previous one. We have to know him. We have to grow in our understanding of him. We have to know what God's will is because God's will will God's will will reveal to us what we should and should not be doing. That's the first step. And once we know that, we have to make sure we don't play around the edges. We can't mess with this. Some people have learned very well what they can and can't do. Others of us struggle with this. It's a great lesson I've learned. I've learned many lessons from my parents. But my father in particular, being a uh, counselor, a therapist for well, most of his life, at this point I remember him, he would tell stories. Now, don't get worried. He wouldn't use names and he wouldn't be very specific because that's not allowed and not right. But he would remind us as kids to be very careful. And if you know you have a weakness, a weakness if you know you don't have great self-control, then do not allow yourself to be tempted. If you know you have a weakness and you're allowed alcohol to take over your life, then you shouldn't go around it. If you know you have a weakness for drugs, you shouldn't go around it. If you know you have a weakness for gambling, you should not be around it. If you know you have a weakness for gossip, uh-oh, you shouldn't listen to it. Fill in whatever it is. Whatever it is in your life that you have a weakness, you must make sure that you stay away from it. We must be controlling of ourselves so that we don't fall into sin. We cannot play around the edges with it. We must be self-control. We must have self-control in whatever you do. One more question about self-control. When was the last time you told yourself no? Anybody ever practice that? Just because? Even if it's not wrong? Maybe that's something we should try. Maybe we should try it on something easy so that we can realize we can have success and apply it to more challenging things in our lives. When was the last time you told yourself, no, you've practiced self-control? See, we have a real problem in our society because we can do almost anything we want whenever we want, can't we? Many of us. But that's dangerous because we don't learn self-control. And so maybe you should pick something and just tell yourself, 
No. I've had to do that a couple times in my life. I've joked about I have this like love-hate relationship with social media. I won't have it, and then I'll do it. Then I realize it has nothing productive for my life. Then I get convicted by it, and I delete it. And then like a year and a half later, I reinstall it. (laughs) And I go through this like cycle. It's horrific. It's a weakness. I deleted Twitter for like the fourth time about four months ago. Just like I had to be done. And I'm reminded of that every once in a while. Even months later, and I'm like, hmm, I want to look at it. I'm reminded, nope, I can't do it. Because for me, it's not good. It may be okay for you. I don't know. I don't know what God's telling you to do or not to do. But every once in a while, we should practice our self-control. Now, right up there with self-control is the next one. Let's start over in verse 5. And besides all this, giving all diligence, add to your faith virtue, and to virtue knowledge, and to knowledge temperance, or self-control, and to temperance, uh-oh, patience. Now, as I've told many of you, there's only been one topic I was told I could never preach on in this church, and it was patience. I won't tell you who told me. And I think they were kind of joking, but kind of not. Patience, oh, patience. You could interpret that word as steadfastness, perseverance, or endurance. You know when patience is really easy? When we're getting everything we want, right? It's easy to talk about patience when we got what we want. It's when we don't have the things that we think we need. Notice how I said that. It's when we don't have the things that we think we need Patience really becomes a challenge. The other thing about patience is it's not passive. I've used that word once before already. It's not, sometimes we think of patience as just sitting and waiting. Of course, even that word to wait, again, in the scriptures actually means to bind together, to be active. We're never given an opportunity as Christians to totally be passive. When we're told to wait, we're supposed to be doing something. We're to binding things together. When we're told to be patient, it's not like I'm just going to sit in a chair and twiddle my thumbs. No, it is about enduring. It is about endurance. And if you're going to endure something, it's an active word. It means you're going through something. You're doing something. Patience is not passive. It is active. It is endurance. The problem with endurance is it's developed over time. See, my endurance to go out and run is not going to be very far. It would take time for me to train my body to do that. My endurance to put up with someone who knows just how to push my buttons. Anybody have anybody like that in your life? Only three of you. Good for the rest of you. Your endurance, your patience to put up with somebody, and I know everybody knows what I'm talking about, with someone who just knows right how to like stick it to you is something that's developed over time. We must work. Again, these are graces. We must ask for God to help us. We must seek these graces out, and we must develop them in our lives. Patience isn't passive. It's active, and we endure, and sometimes it takes time to be patient. 
Colossians 1.11 tells us that we are strengthened by him to great endurance and patience. God will give us great endurance and patience. How do we get it? We have to ask, first of all. And we have to develop it. James encourages us to know that our trials are God's way of perfecting patience. God wants us to have patience. He desires for us to be patient. And he uses the trials and the hard times when it's really hard to go and be patient. That's when God's working in us to help us develop patience. And we're also reminded in James that eventually patience is rewarded. Our patience is rewarded. So how do we develop patience? A couple of thoughts here. First, I think we need to thank God. We need to thank Him. I think if we took full stock of all the blessings we truly have in our lives, all the way that He has really blessed us, we would be more patient. But what tends to happen as individuals is we focus on what? On the bad things on the negative. And we don't, Sister Barbara, count our blessings, do we? We count all the negatives. And that just makes us more impatient. We absolutely need to thank God for the blessings, the many blessings that He's given us. We also need to seek His purpose. We need to seek His purpose. That ties in with self-control. It ties in with knowledge about what God wants us to do. Do you begin to see all these work together? And so when we know what God wants us to do, when we are virtuous and act on that, when we have uh, the knowledge of it and we have uh, the temperance or the self-control to do those things, it gets easier to be patient because we know that God is working something out in our lives. When we see the purpose, when we see God's will, it's easier to say, I'm going to have to wait. Why? Because I know God is doing something in my life. There is a purpose to this. There is a reward. There is something that comes next. And if you don't understand that, if you don't see the big picture, it's challenging to be patient, isn't it? This is, I think, the real challenge we have as adults. Many times as children, although... No one likes to be patient at any point. There's an end goal. We see, well, if I wait till Christmas, I get to have the the presents. If I can get this on my grade card, I get something at the end. If I can get through one more month and we get to go on this trip, whatever it is, there's a defined outcome, isn't there? And as adults, many times that does what? Well, it just kind of flitters away. Because we're patient, working as hard as we can in our job, and we don't get the promotion or the bonus or fill in the blank. And so it can be challenging to be patient if we don't know the outcome. But here is the outcome. Love God. And who wins in the end? He does. And because he wins, I win. And when we keep our eye on that, it's a little easier to be patient. So how do we grow in patience? We thank God. We seek his purpose. And we remember his promises. We remember his promises. And what is his promise? He will work all things to the good of those who love him and are called according to his purpose. Let me just reread this and do it incorrectly. 
He will work all things so that you're happy and completely satisfied in life. Nope. He'll work all things for the good of those who love him and are called according to his purpose. We may not like the journey. We may not like how long it takes. But if we are patient, if we are knowledgeable, if we are self-controlled, if we act with virtue, God will eventually work these things to our benefit, whether we like it or not. Move on to the next one. Into temperance, patience, into patience, godliness. Godliness. What does that mean? Well, let's go back to Noah Webster. He says, A careful observance of the law of God and performance of religious duties proceeding from love and reverence for the divine character and commands. What a beautiful definition. Let me read that again. A careful observance of the laws of God and performance of religious duties. And this is so important. He says, proceeding from love and reverence for the divine character and commands. Noah Webster draws a very important biblical distinction that we can act godly and be fake, or it can come out of a true love for God and be pure and be true. And what is desired here is that not that we just put on a good face, not that we're fake, not that we pretend to be Christ-like, but that we actually are Christians, and that should come out of a desire to please Him because He loves us and because we've been called according to His name and because we desire to do good for Him. We must, again, remember what it is that God wants us to be. He wants us to be separate from the rest of the world. He wants us to be holy and to be like Him. He wants us to be godly in this way, to pursue Him, to understand His wisdom and His power and His goodness and His holiness and His truth and His justice and all things that are God and all things that are in God. We are to be obedient and righteous, living the same way. We are to be as much as possible like him. That's what the word Christian means. Christ-like. Think about that title next time you tell someone you're a Christian. How quick would you be to raise your hand and say, ooh, ooh, I'm Christ-like. It's challenging, isn't it? There's two ways to look at that. You can look at that and say, I could never be that. I'm the furthest thing from Christ-like. Then you can look at it the way God looks at it. And if you've met him the first time and he's forgiven you, then when he looks at you, all he does see is his son. And therefore you are Christ-like. And therefore you ought to, with self-control and purpose and patience in your life, strive to be more like him. Strive to be that perfect example. Strive to be separate from this world, to be holy, to set yourself apart, to do the things that you should do, to pursue holiness in everything that you do, everything that you think, everything that you say, everything that you do. Bring every thought captive unto God and be like Him. Tying these two together, 1 Timothy 6, but godliness with contentment is great gain. Are you content? I'm telling you, every single one of these words I could preach three or four sermons on. Are you content? Ask yourself that question. I have a hard time answering that. 
Are you content? Godliness, being like God with contentment, is great gain. Why is it great gain? I think it's because it's peaceful. When you have control of yourself, when you strive after the virtues that God has set before us, when you're patient, when you're knowledgeable of Him, and you're content in all of that, it's a great place, isn't it? You ever been content in the face of a storm? You ever had an experience that rocked everything in your life and your entire world, and yet somehow you found great contentment in the midst of that storm? That is God. That is what He wants. That is what He desires from us. Godliness with contentment is a great gain. So how do we become more godly? How do we become more godly? Well, internally, it's a lot driven on faith, hope, and love. Faith, hope, and love. Internally, we must take on these things. We must understand both by example of God's faith, hope, and love, how we should have faith, hope, and love. This is something we do internally. This is an appreciation that we have for God that drives us that we can wake up and know that God is faithful to me and I have hope in that and He loves me. Externally, on the other side of that, we should praise Him. And connecting some of these together, we should be externally self-controlled, self-controlled and we should have patience. You see how all these things work together? So internally, we must have faith hope and love, and externally we should have praise for Him, we should have self-control, and we should have patience. Continuing to move along into patient godliness, and to godliness, brotherly kindness. Or you might better translate that, love of the brethren. What are we talking about? Now we're talking about love for each other. And by each other, very specifically... This is talking about brothers and sisters in Christ. This is talking about how we love, have a special affection for each other. It means that our godliness cannot be selfish or solitary. Now, I've already done a series of sermons on this, but listen to me. It's important that you're here. It's important that you talk to each other when you're not here. It's important that we do life together because we have shared goals, shared aspirations, and a shared God. We must do things together with other believers. We cannot go and have brotherly kindness when we sit alone by ourselves, can we? We must be engaged together. We must be working together. We must have Christian love toward one another and a special affection for one another. This is purposeful And I'll be honest, I think this is a choice. We have to choose to love each other. And sometimes that's a real easy choice, isn't it? But every once in a while, you find a Christian brother or sister, it's not as easy. And maybe they're wrong, or maybe you're wrong, or maybe you're both wrong. But that doesn't change the command for us to love each other in a special way and to take care of each other. In fact, Peter connects some of these together. At 1 Peter, 
1 and 22, 1 Peter, so the first letter he wrote, 1 and 22, says, Having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth, for a sincere brotherly love, love one another earnestly from a pure heart. And then later in 1 Peter 3, 8, he says, Finally, all of you be like-minded and sympathetic. Love as brothers. Be tender-hearted and humble. Do not repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, bless. For to this you were called that you may obtain a blessing. You see, Peter is very much trying to get across this idea that as brothers and sisters, we're to be patient with each other. We're to love each other. We're to serve each other. And that we get a special blessing out of doing that. So important. And I am so, so thankful that this little church does that so well. We really do. And I'm encouraged by it. And I'm thankful for it. And I pray that it continues with great strength. So how do you grow in love for the brethren? Two things. How do you grow in love for the brethren? One, I think you must be purposeful. You have to come. You have to go visit someone. You have to purposely pick up the phone or send them a text or a message. You have to purposely spend time together. You have to be purposeful. That's one thing. And the other is you have to be, as I already said, together. You have to be together. Let us not forsake the assembling of ourselves together. That doesn't just include a Sunday morning. That includes in a few Sundays when we have a picnic. That's us being together, and that's good. So let us not forsake being together. Let us be purposeful about it. And let me come to the last one. And to godliness, brotherly kindness, and a brotherly kindness, charity, or love. This may be the shortest of all of them. Love to whom? So we've already distinguished that brotherly love is to other Christians, brothers and sisters in God. Love is just to everyone. Including who? Your enemies. Ugh. Right? Oh, yes. Love to everyone. Love toward all men. And love to everyone. And so we see through this how we are to grow the increments of our Christian grace, how all these things come together, how we can see the point and the focus of all this that we can read the first four verses and understand that what Peter is telling us is there's a precious faith that we all have that depends on the virtue of Jesus Christ and our saving knowledge in Him. And once we've been saved, therefore, we are to do all these things, add to our saving faith so that we can work together, so that we can enter into this beautiful collective dance or this beautiful song or whatever it is from a few weeks ago that popped into your head, wherever we collaborate together to worship and to love Him and each other and to carry his gospel forward to the dying days of our lives. It's a beautiful thing to look at. He tells us, giving all diligence, add to your faith virtue, and to virtue knowledge, and to knowledge temperance, and to temperance patience, and to patience godliness, and to godliness brotherly kindness, and to brotherly kindness charity and love. I want to give you a longer quote. I don't often do this, but 
One of the references I was looking at had a very interesting take on this, and I don't think I could do it any better, so I'm going to read it, what he said. Thinking of these verses, he said the following in reverse. You ready? We're talking about these graces in reverse. In reverse, he who has love will exercise brotherly kindness. He who has brotherly kindness will feel godliness needful. The godly will mix nothing with patience. And to the patience, to the patient, temperance or self-control is easy. The temperate weighs things well, and so has knowledge. Knowledge guards against sudden impulses, carrying away virtue. I want to read that again just in case you didn't get all of it. So this man of God is looking at these things in reverse. So in reverse, he who has love will exercise brotherly kindness. He who has brotherly kindness will feel godliness is needful and necessary. The godly will mix nothing of society with patience. And the patient temperance or self-control is easy. If you're a patient, self-control is easy. The temperate or the self-controlled weighs things very well, and so has knowledge. And knowledge guards against sudden impulses that carry away our virtue. And so by this, we see whether we go forward or backwards, as long as you have faith, these are things that we should do in our life. These are graces that we should ask for. These are things that we should practice. These are things that we should be mindful of when all of the time. Now I want to close with one more scripture verse. You can turn there if you want to. I'll be in Acts 24. Real quick, I won't be too long. Acts 24, beginning with verse 25. Acts 24 and verse 25. This is an account of Paul when he's been arrested. And he's going before Felix. And Paul gives the reason for his arrest, which is his faith in Jesus Christ. And it says something fairly peculiar here in verse 25. And as he reasoned of righteousness, temperance, and judgment to come, those three things, Felix trembled and answered, Go thy way for this time, when I have a convenient season, I will call for you. What does this have anything to do with what I just said? What does Paul preaching to Felix, who, by the way, like many of the kings and rulers and judges of that time, was deep in an inappropriate relationship with a woman named Drusilla, who was Jewish, who he stole from another man, whose grandfather was Herod the Great, who tried to kill Jesus. And there's all other kinds of stuff in there. So when Paul gets to go before Felix, 
He reasoned of being righteous and having temperance or self-control. Because I would imagine that when Paul talked to Felix, he just laid it out there. Felix, you are wrong for having married who you were married. You are wrong for doing the things that you're doing. And I think from this, I take from this, and I've preached on this before, says Felix trembled and answered, go away when it's convenient, I'll have you come again. Brothers and sisters, understand that without the power of sin, without being confronted with who you are by your nature, the fact that we don't have self-control, the fact that we're not virtuous, the fact that we don't love each other, the fact that we don't have brotherly affection, until we are confronted with that, we do not necessarily see the need for a Savior until we have a mirror put in front of our face and we realize just how evil we really are. This is why the gospel, when it's preached, must be preached and identify and talk about sin because you must be confronted with your actions and behaviors to realize that you are not righteous and you are not holy and you do not have self-control. And when you are, I'll use the word here, convicted, because I think that's what this is talking about. Felix trembled. He wasn't trembling because Paul had any power against him. Paul was in chains. He was trembling because he knew that God was speaking to his heart and said, you, Felix, are wrong. You are in sin. And Paul was telling him how to fix that situation. And Felix trembled because he realized that he was separated from God. Felix had every opportunity to do what? To fall before his face, to become self-controlled, to ask God for forgiveness, but he wouldn't do it. Why? I don't know. Was he too proud? Maybe. Was he worried about what everybody else in Rome would think when now this man becomes a follower of this sect? Was he worried about identifying with Paul? Because Paul, well, he's kind of weird. We don't like him. Was he worried about having to give up the sin in his life that he didn't want to let go of? I don't know. All those things, none of those things, other things, I have no idea. But the point is this, at some point in your life, you will come before an almighty God and God will reveal to your heart the things that you're doing are wrong. He will put his finger right there and he will say, you are not righteous and you have no self-control and therefore are separated from God. And the only way to fix that is to come before me and to give up and to seek my salvation, to put your faith in me, and you will have the same choice that Felix had. You can do it then and there when God's dealing with you, or you can say, go away. At a convenient time, you can come back. Brothers and sisters, let us not put off for tomorrow. It should be done today. If God is dealing with your heart, If God is calling you out on a sin, if God is reminding you how you don't have self-control in a certain area or how you are not righteous because you've never come to know him, then you must, just like Felix, when you're trembling, answer God the right way and to do it with all haste and diligence now. Not put it off for tomorrow. Not think, well, maybe next Sunday. Not think, well, I don't want to give up my sinful life just yet. I'm still having fun. You must be willing to give it up and turn it over to him, and you must seek him. What happened to Felix? Don't know. 
Did he become a believer later? Maybe. If he did, does that mean his life was like instantly better? Not in the way we think of it. Brothers and sisters, as we think about all these things, let us not forget that when I stand before you and I try to reason or to passionately describe to you the righteousness of God and the lack of self-control we have and the fact that there is judgment to come for misbehaving and for sin and for doing all the things you shouldn't do, if you are trembling for any reason, the only correct answer is to talk to God. I can't save you. I can't tell you what to say. I can't do it for you. Only God has the power to reach into your heart to point right on the spot where it hurts and say, come to me. And so as we think about these things, as we think about love and self-control and godliness and patience and knowledge and virtue, let the Spirit of God point to your weakness. And whatever you do, do not ignore it. Go to him. Ask him for help. If you need salvation the first time, then seek that. If you need self-control, ask for it. If you need patience, ask for it. If you need brotherly affection, ask for it. If you're struggling with, to love someone, ask God to help you. He wants you to have these graces. He is wanting to multiply them to you. If we would simply ask. And so as we have an opportunity for you to ask, seek him. But don't sit there wondering, don't sit there trembling, don't sit there concerned and do nothing. Do something to make it right. Let's have a hymn.